Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for January 3, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the headline is from the war in the Middle East. The headline says, Strike in Lebanon Kills Hamas Leader. Apparent Israeli attack increases risk of conflict escalation. An apparent Israeli strike in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, killed Hamas number two political leader on Tuesday, marking a potentially significant escalation of Israel's war against the militant group and heightening the risk of a wider Middle East conflict. Saleh Aruri, who was the most senior Hamas figure killed since the war with Israel began, was also a founder of the group's military wing. His death could provoke major retaliation by Lebanon's powerful Hezbollah militia. The strike hit an apartment in a building in a Shiite district of Beirut that is a Hezbollah stronghold, and Hezbollah leader Saeed Hassan Nasrallah has vowed to strike back against Israeli targeting of Palestinian officials in Lebanon. Hezbollah and the Israeli military have been exchanging fire almost daily over the Israeli-Lebanese border since Israel's military campaign in Gaza began October 7. But so far, the Lebanese group has appeared reluctant to dramatically escalate the fighting. A significant response now could send the conflict spiraling into all-out war on Israel's northern border. Lebanon's state-run national news agency said the strike was carried out by an Israeli drone, and Israeli officials declined to comment. Speaking to reporters, Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari did not directly mention Abruri's death, but said, We are focused and remain focused on fighting against Hamas. We are on high readiness for any scenario, he added. The killing comes ahead of a visit to the region by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, even as the United States has tried to prevent the conflict from spreading, warning Hezbollah and its regional supporter Iran not to escalate the violence. <clears throat> Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with the assault in Gaza until Hamas is crushed and the more than 100 hostages still held by the militant group in Gaza are freed, which, he has said, could take several more months. At the same time, Israeli officials have increasingly warned in recent days of stepped-up action against Hezbollah unless its cross-border fire stops. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials have repeatedly threatened to kill Hamas leaders wherever they are. The group's October 7 attack from Gaza into southern Israel killed around 1,200 people, and some 240 others were taken hostage. Israel claims to have killed a number of mid-level Hamas leaders in Gaza, but this would be the first time it has reached into another country to target top leaders, many of whom live in exile around the region. Aruri was the deputy of Hamas' supreme political leader, Ismail Haniya, and headed the group's presence in the West Bank. He was also a key liaison with Hezbollah. 
Tuesday's blast shook a residential building in the Beirut suburb of Musha Arafi, killing four people, according to the Lebanese news agency. Hamas confirmed that Arori was killed along with six other members of the group, including two military commanders. Haniga said Hamas was more powerful and determined following the attack. They left behind them strong men who will carry the banner after them, he said of those killed. Hezbollah called the strike a serious attack on Lebanon, its people, its security, sovereignty, and resistance. We affirm that this crime will never pass without response and punishment, it said. Israel's ground and sea assault in Gaza has killed more than 21,900 people in Gaza, two-thirds of them women and children, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-ruled territory. The count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. The campaign has driven some 85% of Gaza's population from their homes, forcing hundreds of thousands of people into overcrowded shelters or tent camps in Israeli-designated safe areas that the military has nevertheless bombed. Israel's siege of the territory has left a quarter of Gaza residents facing starvation, according to the United Nations. Israel announced Monday that it would withdraw five brigades or several thousand troops, from Gaza in the coming weeks. Still, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said it would be a mistake to think that Israel is planning on halting the war. The feeling that we will stop soon is incorrect, he said Tuesday. Without a clear victory, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. Also on Tuesday, officials said Israel will defend itself before the United Nations top court against charges that it has engaged in genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. The announcement set the stage for what is likely to be a landmark case in international law. South Africa launched the case Friday at the International Court of Justice at The Hague, Netherlands, saying the Israeli military campaign targeting Hamas has resulted in enough death, destruction, and humanitarian crisis in Gaza to meet the threshold of genocide under the international law. South Africa asked the court to order Israel to halt its attacks in Gaza. Also on the front page, we have an article entitled What a Biden-Trump Rematch Could Mean for U.S. Politics. U.S. presidential elections have been rocked in recent years by economic disaster, stunning gaffes, secret video, and a pandemic. But for all the tumult that defined those campaigns, the volatility surrounding this year's presidential contest has few modern parallels, posing profound challenges to the future of American democracy. Not since the Supreme Court effectively decided the 2000 campaign in favor of Republican George W. Bush has the judiciary been so intertwined with presidential politics. In the coming weeks, the High Court is expected to weigh whether states can ban former President Donald Trump from the ballot for his role in leading the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court 
is weighing Trump's argument that he's immune from prosecution. The maneuvers are unfolding as prosecutors from New York to Washington and Atlanta move forward with 91 indictments across four criminal cases involving everything from Trump's role in the insurrection to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election and his hush money paid to a porn actress. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden is seeking re-election as the high inflation that defined much of his first term seems to be easing, but that has done little to assuage restless voters or ease widespread concerns in both parties that, at 81, he's simply too old for the job. And at least three serious candidates who have launched outsider presidential bids threaten to scramble the campaign and eat into the support from independent voters who were critical to Biden's success in 2020. Facing such uncertainty, a few expect the traditional rules of politics to apply in 2024. Jim Messina, who managed former President Barack Obama's re-election, said Trump could very well defeat Biden next fall, even if the former president is in prison. We just don't know, Messina said. Everyone in the world knows, especially me, that this election is going to be really, really close. One of the few certainties at this point is that Biden is on track to be the Democratic nominee again, facing only token opposition in this year's primary, despite overwhelming concerns within his own party about his physical and mental fitness. And though a few rivals are fighting furiously to stop Trump, he is well positioned to win the GOP nomination for the third consecutive election. The strength of the GOP opposition to Trump will become more clear on January 15, when the Iowa caucuses launch the nomination process. Trump holds a commanding lead in most national polls, although former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are fighting to stop him. Allies of DeSantis and Haley privately concede that their best chance to wrestle the nomination from Trump would come in a long-shot push for a contested convention in Wisconsin this July. Public polling strongly suggests that voters do not want a rematch between Trump and Biden. Most U.S. adults, overall 56%, would be very or somewhat dissatisfied with Biden as the Democratic presidential nominee in 2024, according to a poll conducted last month by the Associated Press and NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. A similar majority, 58%, said they would be very or somewhat dissatisfied with Trump as the GOP's pick. Perhaps because of such apathy, some voters simply don't believe Biden and Trump will end up on the general election ballot, despite strong evidence to the contrary. That's an idea that conservative strategist Sarah Longwell, who founded the Republican Accountability Project, says she hears regularly during weekly focus groups with voters across the political spectrum. Voters really aren't thinking about it, 
so they don't see the thing that's coming right at us. The most likely scenario, which is Trump versus Biden, Longwell said, but Trump is so dangerous. I wish the level of urgency from everybody matched the reality of where we are headed. While concerns about Biden are centered on his age, Trump has increasingly embraced authoritarian messages that serve as clear warnings of his plans to dismantle democratic norms if he returns to the White House. Echoing strongmen leaders throughout history, Trump has framed his campaign as one of retribution and has spoken openly about using the power of government to pursue his political enemies. He has repeatedly harnessed rhetoric once used by Adolf Hitler to argue that immigrants entering the U.S. illegally are poisoning the blood of our country. He said on Fox News last month that he would not be a dictator except for day one, and he shared a word cloud last week to his social media account highlighting words like revenge, power, and dictator. Biden, like his party more broadly, has leaned into concerns about the future of democracy should Trump return to the White House, but that has done little to improve his standing. Early polls reveal weakness among core segments of his coalition, including voters of color and young people. People on Biden's team do not fear that his base will defect to Trump in the general election, but they privately worry that some of the Democratic president's supporters may not vote at all. They're betting that Biden's achievements, which include landmark legislation on gun control, climate change, and infrastructure, will eventually help overcome pervasive concerns about his age. Ultimately, however, Biden's campaign believes that voters will rally behind the president once they fully understand that Trump could realistically return to the White House. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, who sits on Biden's advisory council, said the president's re-election campaign knows it can't take any vote for granted, which is why the campaign has already invested heavily in efforts to mobilize Biden's diverse coalition. This election will be a choice a choice between a president who has delivered historic results for the American people and someone who poses an existential threat to our democracy and freedoms, Dickens said. We will win in November once we fully make the case, explain the stakes, and make the choice clear. And now in international news, a story from Kinshasa, Congo. Stigma may worsen Congo's impacts. As the Democratic Republic of Congo copes with its biggest outbreak of impacts, scientists warn discrimination against gay and bisexual men on the continent could make it worse. In November, the World Health Organization reported that MPOX, also known as monkeypox, was being spread via sex in Congo for the first time. That is a significant departure from previous flare-ups, where the virus mainly sickened people in contact with diseased animals. Mpox has been in parts of Central and West Africa for decades, but it was not until 2022 that it was documented to spread via sex. Most of the 91,000 people infected 
in approximately 100 countries that year were gay or bisexual men. In Africa, unwillingness to report symptoms could drive the outbreak underground, said Dimi Ogonya, an infectious diseases specialist at the Niger Delta University in Nigeria. It could be that because homosexuality is prohibited by law in most parts of Africa, many people do not come forward if they think they have been infected with MPOX, Ogonia said. WHO officials said they identified the first sexually transmitted cases of the more severe type of MPOX in Congo last spring, shortly after a resident of Belgium who identified himself as a man who has sexual relations with other men, arrived in Kinshasa, the Congolese capital. The United Nations Health Agency said five other people who had sexual contact with the man later became infected with MPOX. We have been underestimating the potential of sexual transmission of MPOX in Africa for years, said Ogonya, who, with his colleagues, first reported in 2019 that MPOX might be spreading via sex. Gaps in monitoring make it a challenge to estimate how many MPOX cases are linked to sex, he said. Still, most cases of MPOX in Nigeria involve people with no known contact with animals, he noted. In Congo, there have been about 13,350 suspected cases of MPOX including 607 deaths through the end of November, with only about 10% of cases confirmed by laboratories. But how many infections were spread through sex isn't clear, WHO said. About 70% of cases are in children under 15. During a recent trip to Congo to assess the outbreak, WHO officials found there was no awareness among health workers that MPOX could be spread sexually, resulting in missed cases. WHO said health authorities had confirmed sexual transmission of MPOX between male partners and simultaneously through heterosexual transmission in different parts of the country. MPOX typically causes symptoms including a fever, skin rash, lesions, and muscle soreness for up to one month. It is spread via close contact, and most people recover without needing medical treatment. During the 2022 major international outbreak, mass vaccination programs were undertaken in some countries, including Canada, Britain, and the U.S., and targeted those at at highest risk, gay and bisexual men. But experts say that it's not likely to work in Africa for several reasons including the stigma against gay communities. I don't think we'll see the same clamoring for vaccines in Africa that we saw in the West last year, said Dr. Boguma Titanji, an assistant professor of medicine in infectious diseases at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. She said that the gay and bisexual men most at risk of MPOX might be fearful of coming forward in a broad immunization program. Countries should work on ways to give the shots, if available, in a way that wouldn't stigmatize them, she said. Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyemba, General Director of Congo's National Institute of Biomedical Research, 
said two provinces in Congo had reported clusters of mpox spread through sex, a concerning development. And now in national and world news, we have a story entitled, from Harvard University entitled, Hem- Embattled Leader Resigned. Gay faced backlash for testimony at hearing and alleged plagiarism. Harvard University President Claudine Gay resigned Tuesday amid plagiarism accusations and criticism over testimony at a congressional hearing where she was unable to say unequivocally that calls on campus for the genocide of Jews would violate the school's conduct policy. Gay is the second Ivy League president to resign in the past month following the congressional testimony. Liz McGill, president of the University of Pennsylvania, resigned December 9. Gay, Harvard's first black president, announced her departure just months into her tenure in a letter to the Harvard community. Following the congressional hearing, Gay's academic career came under intense scrutiny by a conservative activist who unearthed several instances of alleged plagiarism in her 1997 doctoral dissertation. The Harvard Corporation, Harvard's governing board, initially rallied behind Gay, saying a review of her scholarly work turned up a few instances of inadequate citation. Days later, the Harvard Corporation said it found two more examples of duplicative language without appropriate attribution. The board said Gay would update her dissertation. The Harvard Corporation said the resignation came with great sadness and thanked Gay for her deep and unwavering commitment to Harvard and to the pursuit of academic excellence. Alan M. Garber, provost and chief academic officer, will serve as interim president until Harvard finds a replacement. Gay's resignation was celebrated by the conservatives who put her alleged plagiarism in the national spotlight, with additional plagiarism accusations surfacing as recently as Monday in the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative publication. Christopher Rufo, an activist who has helped rally the GOP against higher education, said he's glad she's gone. Rather than take responsibility for minimizing anti-Semitism, committing serial plagiarism, intimidating the free press, and damaging the institution, she calls her critics racist, Rufo said on X, formerly Twitter. Gay, in her letter, said it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Still, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign, wrote Gay, who is returning to the school's faculty. And now from Western Japan, an article entitled, Officials Warn of More Quakes. Amid aftershocks, death toll rises to 62, many homes destroyed. A series of powerful earthquakes that hit western Japan have left at least 62 people dead and damaged thousands of buildings, vehicles, and boats. Officials warned Tuesday that more quakes could lie ahead. Aftershocks continued to shake the Ishikawa 
prefecture and nearby areas a day after a magnitude 7.6 trembler slammed the area. Damage was so great that it could not immediately be assessed. Japanese media reports said tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Dozens of people have been seriously injured, including in nearby prefectures. Water, power, and cell phone service were still down in some areas. Residents expressed sorrow about their uncertain futures. It's not just that it's a mess. The wall has collapsed, and you can see through to the next room. I don't think we can live here anymore, Miki Kobayashi an Ishikawa resident, said as she wept, swept around her house. The house was also damaged in a 2007 quake, she said. Although casualty numbers continued to climb, the prompt public warnings relayed on broadcasts and phones and the quick response from the general public and officials appeared to have limited some of the damage. Toshi Takara Katara a University of Tokyo professor specializing in disasters, said people were prepared because the area had been hit by quakes in recent years. They had evacuation plans and emergency supplies in stock. There are probably no people on earth who are as disaster-ready as the Japanese, he told the Associated Press. Japan is frequently hit by earthquakes because of its location along the Ring of Fire, an arc of volcanoes and fault lines in the Pacific Basin. Katara warned the situation remains unpredictable. The March 2011 quake and tsunami in northeastern Japan had been preceded by other quakes. This is far from over, Katara said, adding having too much confidence in the power of science is very dangerous. We are dealing with nature. And now in national news, an article entitled Trump Appeals Maine Officials Ballot Ruling. Ex-president's lawyers argue clause doesn't apply to U.S. top office. Former President Donald Trump on Tuesday appealed a ruling by Maine's Secretary of State barring him from the state's primary ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The 2024 Republican frontrunner appealed the decision by Maine Democrat Shanna Bellows, the first Secretary of State, to bar someone from running for the presidency under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which prohibits those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. Trump's lawyers argue the provision isn't intended to apply to the president, and the oath for the nation's top office isn't to support the Constitution, but to preserve, protect, and defend it. The appeal to a Maine Superior Court asked that Bellows be required to place him on the March 5 primary ballot. Trump is expected to appeal a similar ban in Colorado to the U.S. Supreme Court. Separately, a liberal activist asked a Pennsylvania court Tuesday to bar U.S. Representative Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, from the state's primary ballot, arguing Perry isn't eligible under the same provision because of his efforts to keep Trump in office after his 2020 election loss. And finally, an article entitled National Debt Hits $34 trillion Earlier Than Projected. The federal government's gross national debt surpassed $34 trillion 
a record high that foreshadows the coming political and economic challenges to improve America's balance sheet in the coming years. The U.S. Treasury Department issued a report Tuesday logging U.S. finances, which have become a source of tension in a politically divided Washington that could see parts of the government shut down without an annual budget in place. Republican lawmakers and the White House agreed last June to temporarily lift the debt limit, staving off the risk of a historic default. That agreement lasts until January of 2025. The Congressional Budget Office's January 2020 projections had gross federal debt eclipsing $34 trillion in fiscal year 2029. However, the debt grew faster than expected because of the COVID-19 pandemic that started in 2020 and shut down much of the U.S. economy. The government borrowed heavily under then-President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden to stabilize the economy and support a recovery but the rebound came with a surge of inflation. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for January 3, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for January 3, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the lead article is called Taking the Oath. Re-elected members of the Fort Dodge Council begin new terms. In a simple, quick ceremony Tuesday morning, the Fort Dodge City Council prepared to move forward for the next two years with the winners of the November election taking office. Humboldt County Magistrate Nevin Conrad, who is a former City Council member, administered the oath of office to four members who were re-elected. They are Megan Secor, who was re-elected for a full four-year term as an at-large member. She had won a February 2023 special election to complete Conrad's unexpired term. Cameron Nelson, re-elected to a second term in Ward 2, which is on the city's south side. Dave Flattery, re-elected to a seventh term in Ward 3, which is the city's northeast side. Kim Alstott, re-elected to a seventh term in Ward 4, which is the north-central part of the city. The newest member of the council, Jen Crimmins, was not at the ceremony. She was elected to represent Ward 1, replacing Terry Mohinke. Mohinke had represented the ward for 10 years before retiring. Crimmins, who knew in advance she would not be present Tuesday, was previously sworn into office by City Clerk Don Siebkin. Ward 1 includes Western and Northwestern Fort Dodge, Pleasant Valley, and part of downtown. Council members elected to represent wards serve two-year terms. During a short council business meeting after the swearing-in ceremony, Flattery was re-elected as Mayor Pro Tem. He will preside over meetings and handle other mayoral duties when mayoral Mayor Matt Bemridge is not available. Alstott also named, also was named Dean of the Council. The Dean is traditionally the member with the most seniority who is not the Mayor Pro Tem. The Dean steps in when neither the Mayor or the Mayor Pro Tem are available. Tuesday morning's ceremony began with the color guard of the 133rd Test Squadron 
the Iowa Air National Guard Unit based in Fort Dodge, bringing the American and Iowa flags into the council meeting room. Vicki Reck, the city's community and economic development manager, and Astra Ferris, the chief executive officer of the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance, sang the national anthem. The Reverend Kyle Dana of Prairie Lakes Church provided the invocation. Also on the front page, an article entitled, Police Identify Shooting Victim. A man who died following an apparent shooting on Friday morning has been identified by the Fort Dodge Police Department as 45-year-old Ryan R. Andrews of Fort Dodge. Police are continuing to investigate the death. A previous release from the Fort Dodge Police Department stated that law enforcement were called to the 1600 block of 14th Avenue Southwest at 5.16 a.m. Friday for a report that someone had been shot. When officers and deputies arrived, they found an unresponsive male, now identified as Andrews, laying on the ground with an apparent gunshot. Andrews received medical aid at the scene by officers and medics before being transported to Unity Point Health Trinity Regional Medical Center, where he was later pronounced dead. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation was brought in to assist in the investigation into the incident. As of Tuesday evening, no other new information has been released. Anyone with information is encouraged to call the police department at 515-573-1424 or contact Webster County Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers can be reached at 515-573-1444. Also on the front page, an article entitled, Fleener Announces Re-Election Campaign. Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener announced Tuesday his plans to seek re-election during the 2024 general election. It seems as though the past three years have gone by quickly during my first term as sheriff, but I am extremely proud of the accomplishments we have made as a department, he said. This will be Fleener's 35th year in law enforcement and 29th year with the Webster County Sheriff's Office. I still believe that experience matters and those years of service are important for making good decisions while leading our department through the good and bad times, he said. Leadership is important for our department and that always starts with leaning on experience. Fleener, a Republican, was first elected sheriff in 2020 following the retirement of former sheriff Jim Stubbs. During his first campaign, Fleener prioritized increasing training for the department's sworn staff, increasing the budget for training, and implementing a security program at the Webster County Courthouse. Currently, in addition to annual departmental trainings on state-mandated topics to maintain certification, the Webster County Sheriff's Office also does force-on-force active shooter training officer survival, and de-escalation training. In August 2021, with support from the Webster County Board of Supervisors, the Sheriff's Office began providing security at the Webster County Courthouse, requiring all courthouse visitors to pass through a metal detector and have any bags searched for prohibited weapons. 
The security entrance is staffed with a deputy or bailiff with the sheriff's office at all times. One of the first changes I made when I was elected in 2020 was to update our mission statement, and I am truly honored and humbled to lead this dedicated team of professionals in all phases of law enforcement, dispatch, and corrections, with a goal of always providing top quality service to our citizens. Fleener said, we have shown a lot of growth and changes during this time, and I look forward to the future and what is in store for this department and ask the citizens of Webster County to continue to put their trust in me as their Webster County Sheriff. He said that working with the Board of Supervisors over the last three years, the Webster County Sheriff's Office has improved equipment for the patrol division, restructured work shifts for deputies, increased wages, increased sworn staff from 19 to 21 deputies, began providing full-time patrol service to Otho and Dayton, took over operational duties at the Webster County Dispatch Center, and partnered with Webster County Emergency Management to create a drone team with three certified drone pilots on the Sheriff's Office staff. In addition, this past year, I worked closely with the Fort Dodge Community Foundation to secure a Rural Violent Crime Reduction Initiative grant in the amount of $200,000 to create programs and community-oriented crime reduction programs in an effort to reduce crime in Webster County, Fleener said. Also in 2023, Fleener was able to obtain a decommissioned military armored vehicle at no cost to taxpayers through the Federal Military Surplus Equipment Grant Program. The vehicle is used by the Special Emergency Response Team during high-risk search warrants and other incidents. This vehicle is used as a life-saving tool to keep officers safe and can also be used in search and rescue incidents, Fleener said. The Iowa primary election is Tuesday, June 4. The general election is Tuesday, November 5. And finally, on the front page, we have the article entitled Taking Center Stage, and today it is with Logan Hamilton. The headline on the article, Creative Mind, Drawing and Music, A Passion for Hamilton. When he was little, Logan Hamilton would find whatever he could get his hands on and start drumming. Whether it was a stick or spoon, Hamilton would find joy in pounding out a beat. I've been playing percussion since I was in fifth grade, Hamilton said. To be honest, ever since I was really little, I would find whatever stick-like objects and drum on the couch with them. What really got me into them was my elementary band teacher, Mr. Brad Bleem. I remember taking summer lessons from him and him pushing me to practice to get better. He really instilled in me the love I have for percussion and music. Now, as a senior at Fort Dodge Senior High School, Hamilton is a drum major for the Fort Dodge All-American Marching Band. I auditioned for drum major both my sophomore and junior year, Hamilton said. I auditioned because, for one, I enjoy taking leadership positions where I can work with others, and I thought it would be a fun experience, and it definitely has been. I really like conducting for pep band, as well as the bonds I've made with other band members. 
watching this year's band excel and grow throughout our marching season was an experience I wouldn't trade for the world. Along with the marching band, Hamilton is in wind ensemble, solo and ensemble, jazz band, a cappella, speech, social justice council, and spring musical, as well as the fall play. In the community, Hamilton is the drummer for the First United Methodist Church's praise team and a member of the Fort Dodge Fine Arts Association Youth Council. He has also played percussion for the Christmas Choral Society performance. Being involved in multiple activities means meeting and collaborating with others, Hamilton said, sometimes even learning something new and fun. I just really enjoy being busy and doing things with friends. I think I'm going to miss going to band and choir every other day and getting to start the day off by singing or playing music. There have been lots of fond memories and experiences for Hamilton, but his favorite moments were when first arriving at high school. The best and most memorable moment I've had was all the way back to my freshman year of marching band, Hamilton said. Our drumline got a 9.3 rating at competition, and also when our section leader, Matt Anderson, dropped his snare mid-performance. The best part so far was our winter concert, <clears throat> both playing our winter tunes for jazz and when Sidney Gibbers and I got to play the different size slapsticks and when Sid dropped it on the marimba at the end. Hamilton is a self-made musician as well, teaching himself how to play. I taught myself ukulele and guitar, and I've been drawing since I could remember, he said. I actually got in trouble for drawing too much in third grade, and I also failed drawing my sophomore year. I now post my art online and am creating and developing my own stories and characters. So far, I have 21.5 thousand followers on TikTok, 300 plus on Instagram, and a little over 200 on Tumblr. Throughout his four years in high school, Hamilton has been a member of has had a number of people who have made a, lot, a big impact on his life. My teachers throughout the years have been a big influence, Hamilton said. I can't name them all because that would be a very, very long list, but they have all pushed me to be better, to practice more, to work, and try to get the things I want. More specifically, my homeroom teacher, Mrs. Lisa Stansfield. Being transgender isn't the easiest thing to be, and she's always been in my corner, rooting for me and helping me get back up whenever I'm down. After high school, Hamilton plans on being a comic book author, a part-time barista, and also a musician on the side. Hamilton said he wants to be keeping myself busy doing things I love. One other article on the front page is entitled, California Couple Arrested for Cashing in Stolen Lottery Tickets. A California couple is facing dozens of felony theft charges after allegedly taking lottery tickets during a burglary of a Sac City gas station and cashing in the winning tickets at a Fort Dodge Quick Star. According to Webster County Court Records, Samantha Rochelle Flippo, 39, of Sacramento, California, has been charged with 17 counts of lottery, forgery, or theft of ticket, all Class D felonies. Robert Trent Price, 50, also of Sacramento, 
faces 16 counts of lottery ticket theft, according to court records. Price has also been charged with third-degree burglary, a Class D felony, for allegedly breaking into Dale's Corner Store, 321 Fifth Avenue North, in Fort Dodge, to steal more Iowa lottery game tickets. Criminal complaints for the charges show that Flippo and Price cashed in 17 winning lottery tickets for prizes ranging from $5 to $25 at the Quickstar in Fort Dodge at 1606 Triton Drive on Sunday. The tickets had been stolen during a burglary on December 29 at the Brew Gas Station in Sac City. In total, the couple collected $135 from cashing in the winning tickets. According to the criminal complaint for Price's burglary charge, he allegedly used a crowbar to pry open the front door at Dale's Corner Store between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. on Christmas Day. After getting into the store, he took a lottery ticket kiosk containing Iowa lottery game tickets. Court documents do not show exactly how many lottery tickets were taken during either the Sac City or the Dale's Corner Store burglary. Price and Flippo had their initial appearances in Webster County Magistrate Court on Tuesday. Flippo was released under the supervision of the Department of Correctional Services and has a preliminary hearing scheduled for January 22. Price is being held on a $5,000 cash or surety bond and has a preliminary hearing scheduled for January 12. The Messenger editorial today is entitled, The Christmas Spirit of Giving Should Continue Throughout the Year. The needs don't end when the holiday season concludes. Every year around the holidays, the generosity of people who live in and around Fort Dodge blossoms. The familiar red kettles of the Salvation Army get filled with change by people going in and out of stores. Donations flow for initiatives like Bikes for Tykes. Those are some of the best-known helping campaigns in the Fort Dodge area that ramp up at Christmas time, and we know there are a lot of others out there as well. The holiday season is now over. Several charitable programs have gone dormant until next Christmas, but the need is still there. Hunger, sickness, poverty, and other woes don't disappear when the Christmas lights get packed away. Organizations like the Salvation Army fight those issues all year long. That fight is conducted out of the public view, for the most part, and it requires funding. Helping the hungry, sick, and downtrodden never gets any cheaper. The generosity that's a cherished part of the Christmas spirit gives charitable organizations a big shot in the arm every year. But as the year progresses, there really isn't any other season, holiday, or event that spurs such an outpouring of donations. And all through the year, various groups are still laboring away to help our neighbors. Those groups may struggle with their finances as the year goes on. That shouldn't have to happen. While Christmas is over, it is not time for people to close their hearts and their billfolds. We urge people to donate to worthy causes, especially local ones, all through the year. Donations, even small ones, spread out over an entire year can mean a lot. Charitable organizations and the people they serve will be grateful. 
And now we have an article entitled Conrad, Reappointed Chairwoman of Board of Supervisors. Webster County Board of Supervisors Chairwoman Nikki Conrad was reappointed to chair the board for the 2024 during its first meeting of the year on Tuesday. Conrad, a Democrat who serves District 4, was first appointed chairwoman in January 2023. She has served District 4 since 2018 and was most recently re-elected in 2022. Nick Carlson, a Democrat who serves District 5, was also reappointed to his position as vice chair for the board. Other appointments, Ryan Kim was reappointed drainage attorney for 2024. Andy Stanberg was reappointed weed commissioner for 2024. Jeff Johnson was reappointed planning and zoning administrator for 2024. Jerry Beck was reappointed to the conservation board. Gary Nelson, Laura Roach, and Arlen Gorskowski were reappointed to the Planning and Zoning Commission. Tom Dorsey was reappointed to the Veterans Affairs Commission. Austin Hayek, Vicki Reck, and Sharon Stroh were reappointed to the Midas Council of Governments Board. Dylan Hagen was reappointed as the Disaster Services Coordinator for 2024. Dr. Dan Cole was reappointed Webster County Medical Examiner Dr. Christopher Carzoli was appointed Deputy Medical Examiner. The Messenger, the Gowrie News, and the Dayton Leader were named official county newspapers for 2024. In sports, we first take a look at Iowa women's basketball team. We have an article entitled, Clark Hits Game Winner as Time Expires. Caitlin Clark made a three-pointer from the Hawkeyes logo at the buzzer finishing with 40 points and giving number 4 Iowa a 76-73 victory over Michigan State on Tuesday night. Clark, the nation's leading scorer, was 14 of 34 from the field and went more than 14 minutes without a point in a stretch in the second and third quarters. The Hawkeyes were able to get her the ball in the final seconds, though a long way from the basket, but Clark took the pass from Hannah Stolke and hit from 30 feet as the buzzer sounded. The Hawkeyes, 14-1 overall, 3-0 in the Big Ten, extended their winning streak to 11 games behind Clark and Stolke, who had 15 points. Michigan State, 11-3 overall, 1-2 in the Big Ten, had tied the game at 73 on Dee Dee Hageman's layup with 22 seconds left. After a timeout, the Hawkeyes worked the clock down. Stulke fumbled the ball momentarily, but recovered to get the ball to Clark for the winning shot. Clark had 19 of Iowa's first 33 points, but went from the six-minute mark of the second quarter to one, the one-minute 32-second mark of the third without a point, as the Spartans built a six-point lead with 2 minutes 23 seconds left in the third quarter. She then scored 8 points in the span of 70 seconds, and the teams were tied at 55 at the end of the quarter. Michigan State opened the game with an 8-0 run that was answered by Iowa's 14-0 run. The Hawkeyes built a 10-point lead late in the first quarter, but their offense struggled after that. 
Iowa shot just 25% in the second quarter, and the Spartans closed the half with a 9-0 run to lead 37-35. Julia Arrow had 16 points for the Spartans. Hageman had 14 points. Moira Joyner and Tori Osment each had 10 points. The Spartans, who came into the game on a four-game winning streak, kept pace with the Hawkeyes on their home court with a good sign for a team under first-year coach Robin Freilich. The Hawkeyes struggled from the field midway through the game, but 10 points second quarter was their lowest output in a quarter this season. But Clark recovered from the scoreless stretch, delivered big shots down the stretch. And then on to the Iowa men's basketball. The article is entitled, Hawks Can't Get Past Wisconsin on the Road. Wisconsin's parade to the free throw line helped put Iowa in an early hole in Big Ten competition for a second straight season. Tyler Wall scored a season-high 19 points, and Stephen Crowell had a double-double to lead a balanced attack as number 21 Wisconsin beat Iowa 83-72 on Tuesday night for its third straight victory. After the game was tied 32-all at halftime, Wisconsin, 10-3 overall, 2-0 in the Big Ten, pulled away by continually working the ball inside. The Badgers shot 58.3% from the floor and went 20 of 26 from the foul line in the second half. For us, it's always a point of emphasis. No matter who we play, Wisconsin coach Greg Gard said, we want to play through the paint. Wisconsin's edge from the foul line helped the Badgers win comfortably, despite shooting 4 of 16 from three-point range. The Badgers were 25 of 35 on free-throw attempts, while Iowa was 11 of 16. We fouled way too much, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said. This team's too good to put on the free-throw line 35 times. Iowa is dealing with its second straight 0-3 start in the Big Ten competition. The Hawkeyes bounced back from that stumble out of the gates last year to post an 11-9 league record and earn their third consecutive NCAA tournament berth. The Hawkeyes, 8-6 overall, 0-3 in the Big Ten, had won three straight posting lopsided victories over Florida A&M, Maryland-Baltimore County, and Northern Illinois. Tony Perkins scored 25 points, and Owen Freeman had 14 points and 13 rebounds for Iowa.
Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.